You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. The Red Sea attacks on cargo vessels have upended global trade, sending giant oil, gas, and container ships on costly and time consuming detours. Diverting from the Red Sea means avoiding the all-important Suez Canal trade route, causing delays that threaten supply chains and which could rekindle the fires of inflation. How bad could the crisis get and how will it end? Let's bring in two experts on global shipping to sort it out. Lee Clasco is Senior Logistics Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. And Kenneth Lowe, Bloomberg Intelligence Shipping and Logistics Analyst. Lee and Ken, it's great to have you. Great to be here, Tom and John. Thanks for having us. Thanks, John Tom. Lee, how important is the Red Sea and Suez Canal for global shipping? It's extremely important. It makes up uh, a big percentage of uh, trade. For instance, uh, freight uh, that's on a container ship that starts from Asia that goes to Europe, about 30% of that trade goes through the Suez Canal. So it's, it's pretty significant. And we've seen all these ships just totally avoid the Suez. But you still see dry bulkers and tankers still there. Uh, and it's a pretty major artery as it relates to trade because the alternatives not only take longer but cost more as well uh, and creates inefficiencies in the market. So if you were to avoid the Red Sea and reroute vessels, I'm assuming through the Cape of Good Hope, what's the additional cost and how long will it take? Yeah, to go around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, it could take anywhere between 10 and 12 days, maybe even longer, depending how fast you're going. We've seen uh, ships employ slow steaming, which means they just go as slow as they possibly can to conserve gas. You could see ships to start to speed up now. One of the reasons why they were doing the slow steaming was to kind of soak up some excess capacity in the market. And what this uh, dislocation in the market has done is really created an environment where there is no slack capacity, and that's pushed rates up significantly, upwards up to 400% since uh, the October lows, depending on the trade. You know, not all trades have been up that high, but Asia to Europe have been specially pushed up. And Lee Clasco, you've been covering shipping for about 10 years now. From where you sit and in your view, how does the Red Sea situation stack up you know, on the hierarchy of crises affecting global shipping during the years you've been covering it? Yeah, so um, the biggest dislocation within supply chains, and that includes global shipping, was obviously the pandemic. You know, I'm based in the U.S., so my outlook is a little uh, U.S.-centric. During the pandemic... The two largest ports, the Port of L.A. and Long Beach in Southern California, had a huge backup. They had over 100 ships waiting to get to the docks and unload their freight. Normally, there's zero to one of uh, ships that are waiting. So it was a, it's a huge uh, choke point, bottleneck, whatever you want to call it. That is probably the biggest supply chain dislocation that, that I've ever seen. Um, And I don't really think that we're going to see anything quite like that. And I think the Red Sea is an issue, but it's not going to be as bad as what we saw during the pandemic. A, because we think it's going to be a little short term. Uh, I'm not going to say transitory, but it's definitely going to be short term, in my opinion. And so it's not going to have that long impact. And as soon as ships are able to go through the Red Sea without fear of getting attacked by the Houthi rebels, 
supply chains are just going to go back to normal. It's not going to be like a light switch where it's going to happen overnight. It's going to take a couple of weeks and maybe even a month or two for things to normalize, but they'll normalize a lot quicker than what we saw during the pandemic. The reality is supply chains are just getting back to quote unquote normal from the pandemic. And this was obviously a black swan event, what's going on in the Suez Canal and in the Red Sea, that we weren't expecting when we did our 2024 outlook in early December. I personally think that the street's getting a little too optimistic about how long these positive rates are going to be, because at the end of the line, when things do quote unquote normalize, there's this structural overhang that's facing the industry where there's so much slack capacity out there and the capacity is growing every year and that growth is expected to outpace demand we were expecting rates to be extremely weak through 2025 um, so this is um i guess christmas came early for a lot of the liners but you know we just don't think it's sustainable so lee from a global trade perspective are we almost fortunate or lucky that the red sea attacks happened now when there was so much slack or excess capacity in global shipping yeah, I mean, lucky for liners, uh, it's obviously a terrible thing because there's people shooting bombs at commercial vessels. That's a bad thing. We don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we don't want, uh, you know, there's crews on board of those ships. And those ships are carrying things, you know, some things that are very important from the mundane to could be Band-Aids uh, or could be T-shirts or could be uh, video games. It could be who knows what's inside those containers. Some are essential items and, and some are obviously uh, consumables but it's impacting global trade. And in a world where a lot of countries are dealing with inflationary pressures, so freight rates have been deflationary for quite some time. And that's one of the reasons that you saw inflation levels moderate because of that deflationary impact. And then all of a sudden you're having rates increase. And listen, at the end of the day, when a rate goes up 400%, it sounds mind boggling, but you know, the listeners have to understand when we were during the pandemic, when liners were making peak earnings and earning levels that they'll never, ever see again, at least in my lifetime, and I hope to live another 30 years, uh, is that um, the rates that they have now that are up 400%, they're still down 70% since those peaks. So rates are good. They're much, much better than we thought they were, but they're not nearly near those peak levels. So it is increasing uh, some of the inflationary, but like other, you know, we cover other modes of transportation, not just what's going on in the water. Uh, It has a knock on effect to air freight rates because more and more shippers are calling their freight forwarders and saying, hey, you know, we have some freight, not all freight. We need to get to call it uh, London uh, at a certain time. Uh, It might make more sense to put it on a plane or maybe ship it somewhere and then put it on a plane as to do some a multi-mode. And then in the U.S., again, that's kind of where my coverage mostly resides, is that it's going, a lot of freight's being diverted to the West Coast from the East Coast because of the Suez Canal. And that freight is being traversed over long distances across the United States via rail and truck. So that's benefiting uh, intermodal and and truck rates. Not as much as what we're seeing in the liner industry, obviously, but it is uh, putting upward pressure on rates no matter what mode you're looking at, at least from, you know, where I'm sitting. Kenneth Lowe, you have some thoughts and observations about the geography of the Red Sea and how its positioning makes it so essential, but at the same time, so vulnerable. Entering from the Indian Ocean means ships have to pass a narrow choke point. Talk a little bit about what role that plays in the broader picture and shipping's reaction to the attacks. 
So for context, the Red Sea is a relatively narrow body of water that links the Mediterranean Sea and Europe to the Indian Ocean and then on to Asia, which is why, as Lee had highlighted, one of the most important trade routes that have been impacted would be the Asia to Europe trade route. So at its narrowest point, there is the strait called the Bab el Mandak. That's about 29 kilometers wide and is therefore, by definition, a choke point, a maritime choke point. And that's also uh, where many of the attacks have happened on vessels. And about 12% of uh, global seaborne trade flows through this area. So, you know, as Lee pointed out, the rerouting of vessels around the Cape of Good Hope would have a detrimental impact on cargo deliveries, schedules, timeliness, and in turn shipping costs. And dovetailing off of that thought, Kenneth Lowe, and Lee Classical, please jump in. The impact on inflation and the threat of inflation, especially at this critical juncture with the Fed. Yeah, so for inflation, it really depends on what's in the container. If you're shipping, call it 10,000 t-shirts in a container, an extra $800 isn't a lot from an inflation standpoint. But if you have two automobiles in a container, the impact on the cost is a lot bigger. And then also, you know, when you're looking at shipping, call it um, crude oil. So a a VLCC can handle 2 million barrels of oil. It can carry 2 million barrels of oil in it. Um, An extra $10,000, you know, we're talking about less than a dollar in added cost. So we have to put things into perspective. I personally think the big inflationary impact is just the freight rate itself on shippers versus the inflationary pressure that the consumer is going to have for the individual product, if that makes any sense. Right. It may just add on, you know, which is probably why we have not really seen too much of a knock-on effect on the goods that we're paying for at this point in time, at least. Because, um, you know, as Lee pointed out, even after the spike in spot rates, that's still quite a marginal increase for most consumer goods, unless of course you are shipping a Ferrari from uh, Europe to Asia, that would of course you know um, be a slightly bigger issue. Yeah. Um, but I think most of us are not in a position to worry about that at the moment, at least. Kenneth, you, you mentioned Ferraris, but what about Teslas? Now, Tesla just announced that they're stopping some production in Europe, specifically because of a shortage in certain parts, I'm assuming from Asia. Is this just the beginning? Are other companies also going to potentially announce production cuts due to the Red Sea? I wouldn't call myself a supply chain expert, um, but I think this is likely to be a temporary measure. For one, um, you know, no one knows how long this crisis, this heightened tensions are going to last. But um, I think for context, most shipping traffic is actually still going through the Red Sea. So um, it might be useful to give our listeners some context here. Container ships, or otherwise known as liners, those are the most heavily impacted so far. Uh, about 70% of the traffic that went through the Red Sea have now been diverted, but actually only about 15 to 20% for bulk vessels and uh, tankers. So most of the time, the decision to divert is a temporary one. Um, quite a number of the larger shipping companies are actually in what we call a holding position. So they're just being given orders to divert for the time being. You know, it's not as if they're going to avoid this region for the rest of the year. 
And, and I, just to add on that, you know, on the supply chain issue, I think it would have been a bigger impact on supply chains if we didn't have the pandemic. Because what people learn from the pandemic is that, like, maybe just in time isn't just in time inventory isn't great. Um, you know, used to be thought really great, but like maybe we'll build a little bit of inventories just in case instead of just in time. Uh, and so I think you saw a lot of companies take that attitude towards their own supply chains. And, and I'm not saying we're going back to the 1970s, you know, where you're going to have a lot of inventory on hand, but you might just make your supply chains a little more resilient to have a couple days or weeks extra on hand versus making it an extremely tight supply chain. And also to add on something that Kenneth's talked about, the interesting thing, at least I find interesting, is that the ships that are still going through the Suez Canal in the Red Sea, a lot of it is Iranian oil, Russian oil. So the Houthis aren't going to attack them because, you know, they're kind of, I guess, friends, uh, quote unquote. Um, and so, you know, their cargoes are probably uh, safe from being attacked. And a lot of ships that are going uh, through into the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal, there's a satellite system called AIS where pretty much anyone can log on to it. There's a lot of great websites out there and you can see the ships going on. We also have uh, some great access to that on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, but a lot of ships are identifying themselves as China only, China crew, in the hopes of not being attacked. So you are seeing ships trying to play the geopolitical angle. They don't want to be obviously associated with Israel. They don't want to be associated with the U.S. or U.K. for that matter. So it's a very interesting drama that's going on. And I think the good news is that even though the Houthis have been busy uh, shooting drones at these ships, uh, from what I understand, there hasn't been any major casualties or deaths associated with that. So I think that's the, the one good thing that's happened so far. And let's hope that continues to happen uh, until this crisis comes to an end. And Lee Clasco, your earlier remarks about supply chains, does that suggest that shortages are not likely as a result of the current state of affairs? It depends on how long this goes. I mean, then that's anyone's guess. Uh, you know, my guess, like I've said, it's going to be short term. We're talking about months, not quarters. So if that's the case, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. I don't think people need to rush to the store and get toilet paper uh, like we did during the pandemic. That was really hard to deal with when you couldn't find toilet paper in the States. You don't want to know what I had to use, uh, but we'll, we'll leave that for another day. Uh, so, you know, I don't think you're going to see those kind of shortages. And again, I, I'm not a foreign relations expert or a geopolitical expert, but it just seems that this is going to come to an end either by Israel kind of ending its bombardment in Gaza against Hamas or the U.S. just redubbed the Houthis a terrorist organization, and that has financial impacts to people within that organization. And, and, and that might be give the Houthis pause about what they're doing, because um, the reality is it's very interesting that which navies are involved uh, in this exercise to try to defend world trade. The one country that is probably impacted the most appears to be doing the least, and that's China. Where we're talking about what the major trade lane is. It's Chinese exports going into Europe. Uh, you would think they would uh, want to take some actions and try to defend their economy, which is sputtering and cooling, which is not good. Um, and you know, I'm not saying they need to necessarily do that through military force, but they probably could do it through some diplomatic force and have this come to an end because it's not just impacting who the Houthis think are the enemy. It's really impacting the global economy uh, and it's impacting pretty much every person within the socioeconomic ranks. 
Okay, so this is quite ironic. The US Navy is patrolling the Red Sea to protect global trade routes, of which arguably China has the most at stake. Kenneth, what percentage of the container ships that go through the Red Sea are transporting Chinese goods? So I don't have the exact number for that, but what I can tell you is that China is by far the single most important source of containers passing through the Red Sea. So most of the containers moving westward on this route arrive from Asia, bound for Europe and the Mediterranean, and most of those containers originate from China carrying Chinese exports. And in fact, 60% of all Chinese exports to Europe pass through the Red Sea. Uh, Lee, there's, uh, there's another canal that's making a lot of news, and that's the Panama Canal, for a completely different reason. It's creating a choke point. Can you give us some background as to the drought in Panama and how this is impacting global shipping? Yeah, so uh, obviously the Panama Canal connects the, uh, the Atlantic and uh, Pacific Ocean. They have not had rain, uh, and they also did some dredging, which uh, kind of exasperated uh, lower water levels. And what that's doing is not only limiting the number of ships that are going across uh, the Panama Canal, but it's also uh, limiting the amount of freight that a ship can carry, because the more freight that's on a ship, the heavier it is, the more it sinks and goes closer to the ground. So therefore, there is limitations there. What we're seeing is um, a number of things, freight being diverted to the west coast of the United States, uh, and again, being intermodaled across the, the country. There is a, a little railroad called the Panama uh, Railroad, which is actually owned by Canadian Pacific Kansas Southern. And that's they're benefiting because they're the land bridge across Panama. So ships, say, from Asia are coming. They're unloading their uh, containers onto these trains. The train goes across Panama, and then they get back. They get unloaded onto a ship on the other side. So you're just seeing supply chains changing. Um, it's impacting shipping. It's not as big as a deal as the Suez Canal, uh, because they're, you know, those ships that are going through the Panama Canal are smaller, and a lot of it is a dry bulk uh, kind of freight. And they, too, can take longer voyages around uh, the tip of South America, but that could be a pretty treacherous journey depending uh, on the time of the year for ships. And, and, and again, these are things that are just uh, soaking up what was considered, uh, at least when we're looking at the liner industry, a year of significant slack capacity. And gentlemen, you both have mentioned how demand for shipping is strong despite the lingering recession threat. Shipping stocks have been outperforming the broader markets as of late. Reasons for it maybe not so great. You know, a short time ago, liners rates were languishing. Is this a case of, you know, bad news for the rest of the world can be good news for shippers? I mean, with respect to uh, the global shipping stocks outpacing the broader markets, you know, I've been saying this joke, and I guess I'll say it here, uh, as long as I've been covering the shipping industry, I don't think I've ever uttered that sentence. Shipping stocks tend to underperform the broader markets. I think the BI Global Marine Shipping Peer Group is up around 9%, and the Hang Seng's down around 9%. The S&P 500 is about flat, leading that growth is liners, and that is just because expectations were so low um, you know a month ago for the industry before all this started to unwind uh, and then you do had that knee-jerk reaction to spot rates going up you know people are just getting excited about what that means I think it's more or less on the liner side really about low expectations versus secular positive 
fundamentals that are going to impact the long-term profitability of the industry because the industry is it's gotten consolidated but it is not a rational industry they over order ships when things are good but it takes a year to two years to build those ships and when they hit the water the freight rates that they when they order the ships usually aren't there for you and so that can create a lot of slack capacity because to time the economic cycle with shipbuilding is is uh, I think it's it's impossible to do. So you know it's it's not necessarily the fault of the ship owners, but they maybe get too excited when times are good. And Lee, you also run your own podcast. Can you tell us about it? Ooh, sure. I get to plug a podcast. Wow, it's like I'm on a talk show. Cross plug. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, so I started in the fourth quarter of last year, a podcast called Talking Transports. And so what we do is we talk to kind of thought leaders within the industry. A lot of it's like CEO level executives, regulators. Within shipping, we've talked to Scorpios, tankers, uh, Robert Bugby. I've also talked to Hamish Norton. You know, uh, he's at a dry bulk carrier. Uh, our most recent episode is with the chairman of the Surface Transportation Board. Uh, that's the regulatory body for the North American railroads or the U.S. railroads. Um, you know, we talked to trucking executives. It's been a lot of fun to do, uh, and, and we have a lot of great guests lined up in the coming weeks. So again, it's called Talking Transports. It's a Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transports podcast. Our guests have been Kenneth Lowe, Bloomberg Intelligence Shipping and Logistics Analyst, and Lee Clasco, Senior Logistics Analyst, also with Bloomberg Intelligence. A very timely discussion about shipping with global impact. Gentlemen, thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thanks, John Tom. Nice to be here with you. Thanks for having us. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. This podcast was produced by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.